This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, prior to working here at Redemption, I spent 17 years working for, for Motorola and later Nokia. And I worked my first two summers as a college intern uh, just down the road at the Continental Towers, those three big buildings there between Golf and, and I-90. And, and while I, I loved every moment of working for Motorola, that's not true. There were some moments I really didn't like at all. I, while I loved most moments working for Motorola, I hated every second of living in the Chicago suburbs those two summers. I despised it. I hated every mile driving up 355 from Naperville to Arlington Heights. And 21 years ago, I thought to myself, you know, there is absolutely no way that I could ever be content living in the 847. It doesn't sound as cool as the 312, does it? That's because it's not. Uh, I never thought I could be cool. Cool. I never thought I could be cool living in the 847 either. <laughs> I wasn't going to be cool living in any area code. But I swore, like, I, I swore, I told God, I was like, there is no way I'm living in Arlington Heights. There's no way I'm living in the 6004 zip code. And as you get older, you, you learn some things. And one of the things I learned was this. Uh, don't ever tell God never. Here's the deal. Now we own a home in Arlington Heights. And we live in that very zip code I swore we would never live in. The one that I, I thought I could never be content living in. But here's the thing, not only do we live where I didn't want to live, we don't live where I wanted to live. See, I've always wanted to live in Europe. I've always had a thing for Europe. And my VP, uh, the last guy I worked for, he, he actually had an opportunity for us to move to Europe and to live in Poland. And like right away, I remember sitting in the cafeteria with him that day. I started booking my plane tickets. I started packing bags. I was planning holidays for us in Italy, uh, Oktoberfest in Munich. Like I'd already ordered the boys little two-year-old lederhosen for when we went. Uh, it was going to be great. They were going to grow up speaking five languages, riding trains, visiting museums. Like this was everything that I had been working towards. And the best part was, we were getting out of Illinois. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs> but my VP, he, uh, he was a good man, and he, uh, he was older, he was wiser, and he says, you know, uh, I think you might want to check with your wife on this. <laughs> and uh, given that we had two little two-year-olds at the time. And so I told Jill, and I was all excited, and I thought she was going to be all excited, and she was like, yeah, no. What she did say, though, she's like, but if it was Paris, I'd probably be in, but not Poland. Wrong P. And so I unpacked the bags that I packed in my head. I refunded the ticket that I hadn't actually purchased, but I wanted to. Fast forward a couple of years later, uh, we had acquired a, a French competitor. And uh, I grabbed my VP that one day on a Monday, and I was like, I got something to tell you. And he's like, is it good news? And I said, it is for one of us. And uh, I shared with him that uh, I was going to be leaving to come to work at Redemption. And as I was sharing that update with him, he then shared an update with me. Uh, and we had just received the latest org chart for the new combined organization. And he was going to share with me where I fit into that org chart and where we would be moving and where I would be working. And it wasn't the 6004. And you know, I don't think one week has gone by since then that I haven't thought about Paris and Poland. And you know, I've never, I've never felt content being in one place for very long. 
I remember I was counting it up. Uh, Jill and I, we lived in six different addresses in the first five years we were married. We, we were never content in any one place, always thinking that uh, we would be more content if we could just get out of here, wherever here was, that, that job, that, that zip code, whatever it was. Because the, the contentment, it was always out there. It was always something that we were chasing. And what I know is that I'm not the only one feeling that. There's this growing sense of discontentment that I think we've been feeling over this last year. I read it in your prayer requests. I, I hear it in our conversations. It's this feeling that, that things just aren't working the way we had hoped. And we want to get out. And so we start thinking that, that someone else or that something else or that somewhere else is going to provide that contentment that we're chasing after, a, a new relationship, a new, a new job, a, a new home, a new state, or maybe like me, a new continent altogether. And that we won't be content until we capture that thing that we're chasing. I have a friend who's a uh, psychiatrist, and he, he kind of described this growing feeling as this. He says, we're looking for external solutions to internal problems. Now we're looking for external solutions to internal problems. And so I want to reframe this a little bit. I, rather than chasing contentment out there, what if we began choosing contentment in here? What if we chose to be content with who we are, who God made us, and who it is that we are with? What if we chose to be content with what we have and what we are doing? What if we chose to be content with where we live, even if it's Illinois and not Paris? That's my prayer for our fall series that we're calling Choosing Contentment. And we're going to begin this morning seeking a to better understand contentment, both what it is and what it isn't in this closing passage here in the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in the, in the book of Philippians. And what I love about this passage is Paul here, he, he speaks both uh, theologically and experientially in this passage, doesn't he? He's, he's able to talk the talk because he walks the walk. And what we're going to see this morning is going to be kind of a 3-2-1 sermon. We're going to see three things that contentment is not. Then we're going to see two things contentment is, and then we're going to close seeing the one true source of contentment. And so let's read this here real quick. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Paul, he writes to the church in Philippi, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. All right, so three, three things contentment is not. Here's number one. Why don't you write this down? My contentment is not dependent on my circumstances. All right, my contentment is not dependent on my circumstances. And I kind of set the stage. Paul wrote this letter to the church in, in Philippi in modern-day Macedonia, and he wrote it at about 62 A.D. So we're about 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he wrote this to a, a church, a church that he had planted roughly 10 years ago in his second missionary journey. We, we read about this in Acts 16. It was a church that he loved, and it was a church that loved Paul. And he wrote to this church from Rome 
And uh, Paul, mind you, he wasn't poolside in some posh resort writing, a, writing an email to these guys. No, he was actually imprisoned. He was under house arrest. His, his first Roman imprisonment that we read about in Acts 28. And yet what we see here is, is that even there, even when he was Im- imprisoned, in the midst of, a, of an uncertain future, he was not only able to rejoice in the Lord, but he was able to rejoice greatly. Paul, he was, he was content and able to rejoice in whatever situation he found himself in, in every circumstance he faced. He was able to rejoice wherever he was, even in prison. And as we read through some of what Paul has written in the New Testament, he, he faced some rather absurd circumstances, didn't he? Some of them were almost unbelievable in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul effectively says, like, I'll see your pandemic, and I will raise you countless beatings. Like, I can't even count them anymore. Most of them to the point of death. Five times, 40 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Stoned. Shipwrecked, not once, not twice, but three times. One of those, I spent the entire night and the next day floating around in the cold water. He was left exposed in the cold, and he had sleepless nights like all of us do because of the pressure of his job bringing the gospel to the world. And everyone out to get him. The Jews were out to get him. The Gentiles were out to get him. And so when Paul says he was content in, in whatever situation he was in, in any and every circumstance, like he means it. He was in need and he, and he went hungry. He was humble and brought low. He faced it all and yet he was content through it all because his contentment wasn't dependent on his circumstances. And what I wonder is if we're able to say the same thing. Is our contentment dependent on our circumstances or not? And I'm not sure we're able to say that because I think far too often we allow our circumstances to dictate our contentment, don't we? I think that can be true of, of where you are. You know, you may not be in prison. God willing, you're here with us this morning, so you're not, but... Uh, Wherever you find yourself in life, it may feel like you're in prison. You may feel trapped with no way out. It's true of what we're facing. It's easy to feel content when things are going well, isn't it? It's easy to feel content when, uh, when you slept well last night, your health is good, uh, you aced that test, you had a good day at work, the kids are behaving themselves and they picked up the room and you only had to ask them six times, not seven, not ten. It's easy to be content when the Bears beat the Packers later this afternoon. There's some wood to knock on. But what about when it feels like the entire world is, is crashing down around you? What about when you still can't find a job or you're anxious about returning to your job? What about... What about the stress of the job as it builds? What about the, the pressure of school? Uh, what about the unknown that lies ahead? Maybe, maybe you're moving. Maybe you're about to graduate. What about when your, your kids are struggling and it feels like there's nothing you can do? What about when your, your health feels like it's spiraling out of control? What about when you've been let down and hurt by others? And I would love to tell you that those are hypotheticals, but man, that's just the prayer request from last week from our church family. That's the stuff we're going through right now. How, how are we ever going to be able to remain content in the midst of all of that? And so what do we do? We start chasing 
contentment, thinking it's, it's over there, that it's, it's out there, believing that the circumstances that we are facing are somehow a, a barrier preventing our contentment, thinking if I can just get out of this, then everything's going to be better. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that what you're facing isn't hard. I'm not saying that what you're feeling doesn't hurt. I'm not saying that we, we can't feel sad. I'm not saying that we can't feel angry. And I'm not saying that we need to suppress our emotions. But what I think Paul is saying here, what God's word is saying here, is that our contentment is not dependent on what it is that we are facing and what it is that we are feeling. Because it's not dependent on our circumstances. I'm saying that in the midst of whatever situation you are facing, whatever negative emotion you might be feeling, even then, somehow, some way, we're still able to choose contentment in the midst of it. But when your contentment is dependent on your circumstances, you will never find true, lasting contentment. I think I need to clarify something here, too. While contentment's not dependent on our desires and dictated by our emotions, let's not uh, swing the pendulum so far to the other side in the opposite direction that we think that contentment is a complete detachment from our emotions and desires, as though uh, desiring something better or something else is somehow wrong or sinful. And yet that's exactly how the Greek Stoics viewed contentment, as though the mere presence of that desire was wrong. Seneca, he wrote, um, a wise man is content with his lot. I think that part we're okay with, whatever it may be. But then he says, without wishing for what he has not. A wise man is content with his lot, whatever it may be, without wishing for what he has not. And that mindset, that, that view, it, it, it begins to distance us from others and from ourselves. We, we lose this lack of awareness of ourselves. It distances us and it slowly dehumanizes us as though our emotions and our desires, the, that having them is wrong. It, but where do we read that in Scripture? Paul, Paul never said that having desires was wrong. In fact, if we flip back a page to chapter 1, he shared his desire to depart from this life to go and be with Christ. He acknowledged that was his desire, but yet in the midst of that, he was going to remain because he knew that's where God had called him. Nowhere does Paul repent of that desire, that longing for something good, for something else, for something more. And if that's not enough, how about Jesus, right? Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, he, he went to the garden with his disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he acknowledged his emotions and he desired for his circumstances to change, didn't he? He told his disciples that he was sorrowful. Luke says that he, he was in such agony that he was bleeding blood, or he was dripping drops of blood. For, that was his sweat. And he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, he prayed, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What I need us to see here before we move on is that your contentment in whatever situation you are facing and your possible desire to be removed from that situation, they are not mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? Contentment is not a suppression of your desires for something else, for something more, for something better. 
It's not giving up hope. It's not resignation that things will never get better because as both Paul and Jesus show us, our contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. Three things contentment is not. Here's number two. It's that my contentment is not dependent on others. I have a contentment. It's not dependent on other people. A little context here. First century Roman prisoners, they were dependent on outside support for everything they needed while they were imprisoned. But not only that, there was this uh, kind of social stigma that was associated with those that were in prison, not much different from today. And so oftentimes friends and family, they would distance themselves from people who were in prison. But not the church in Philippi. They, they did the exact opposite. In fact, Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians 8 that in, in the midst of a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, this church had an overflow of generosity. And they didn't just give, but they gave beyond their means. Church in Philippi was, they had helping churches thrive on their vital few long before we did, didn't they? But while they were, for whatever reason, unable to support Paul financially for a period of time, and we're not sure why, he just says that they, they had no opportunity. They had always supported him relationally, praying for Paul. And now they had revived their concern financially. It had, it had come back to life. That word, it, it kind of refers to like a, like a plant that, that sprouts in the spring, a bulb that, that blooms after lying dormant all winter. And back in chapter 3, we, we see that... Uh, the church, they had sent somebody by the name of Epaphroditus, and he had come to Paul in prison, and he brought him supplies that he needed. He brought him encouragement, and he brought him his presence to simply be with him. And if you've ever experienced that, like, that feels good, doesn't it? It feels good when someone does something for you, when someone is there for you in a time of need to help you out in a tough spot, right? It feels good when people actually show up on moving day, doesn't it? You ever notice all your friends are busy on moving day? Not the day before, not the day after, but that day. It feels good when they, when they watch your kids when you're in need. It feels good when they drop off food when you're in need. You know, as uh, most of you know, as a church family, we've been delivering meals to Fred and Judy Hardman every Friday uh, since uh, the beginning of the summer. And they are so grateful for that. Like, it, it helps make them feel like a part of our church, even though they're not able to physically be with us right now. And while Paul rejoiced at their revived concern, verse 14 says that it, he says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. Um, that's not really what he's talking about. He says in verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need. He didn't rejoice simply because his need was met. He didn't rejoice because of what they did for him, but because of what God was doing in them. He closes in verse 20 saying, to God be the glory forever and ever for what he is doing in and through us. Because his contentment was not dependent on others. And yet so often we get that backwards, don't we? And our contentment is very much dependent on others. It's dependent on what they think of us and what they can do for us. It is dependent on how they treat us and how they make us feel. And that does two things. Number one, it puts pressure on them. And number two, it gives them power over you. And both of those things can be extremely dangerous, can't they? Right? It puts this unfair pressure on others. It, it, it burdens our kids, for example, to live up to those expectations that we've placed on them, living our lives vicariously through them. It, it puts a burden on your husband to provide for a curtain lifestyle, perhaps, 
or on your wife to look a certain way, to always have food on the table and the house always be clean. It puts a burden on the person you're dating to one day become that, that perfect spouse, that, that thing that they'll never live up to. It puts a, an unfair pressure and burden on friends to, to not just always be there for you, but to always agree with you. And that constant pressure that we put on others, it, it causes conflict rather than bringing about contentment. And you notice how when we do that, like you're always frustrated with them. You're always frustrated and angry at them, and they're always afraid of you. They're going to feel like they're walking around eggshells on you, worried that they might offend you. They're, they're afraid of you, afraid of letting you down and upsetting you. And what it does is it burns them out and it pushes them away. That's what that pressure does. But not only does it put unfair pressure on others, uh, we also give others power over us in the midst of this, living for their love and affection, living for their acceptance and approval, fearing that you'll never be enough for them, that you'll never live up to their expectations. And, and, and sometimes what we can do is we can even enter into and remain in, in unhealthy, unsafe relationships because we find our value and our worth in that relationship and in their view of us. And when your contentment is dependent on others, you will never be truly content. The third thing here that contentment is not is this. Here's number three. My contentment is not based on how much I have. Right? It's not based on how much I have. Let's look at verse 12 again. He says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I get God teaching us to be content with less. We, you would expect God to say that, right? That, that makes sense. Um, but yet, in the midst of that, I think we can still misunderstand what God's saying. And so please don't hear God pushing some sort of poverty gospel as though having less will lead to your holiness. God's not saying that. Right? He said, let's, let's praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen? That's the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But at the same time, I, I think our lack of contentment with what it is that we have been blessed with, I think it reveals something. I think it reveals that we have bought into and believe in some form of prosperity gospel. And like, I think when we hear prosperity gospel, we think of those preachers with the really nice suits and the jet planes, and it's all about money, money, money. But like, it's so much more than that. I think it's easy for us to believe that we deserve more. And, and maybe not a lot more, just a, just a little bit more, a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Like, here, here, we're not Creflo Dollar. We're not asking for a jet plane. At least I'm not. Um, I wouldn't know how to fly it. Uh, I wouldn't know where to park it. We've got a little tiny single lane driveway. And uh, not asking for a jet, but like, I don't know, like a, like a better car, right? That'd be okay. One that doesn't have 400,000 miles, maybe. One that you don't have to actually lay hands and pray on before you get in and start it up. Not asking for a, a mansion, not asking for a second, definitely not a third home, but, you know, maybe a, maybe a little nicer condo, maybe a little bit bigger house, one where everybody could have their own bedroom. Not, not asking for a PhD. Yeah, but maybe another degree. I've heard that one from some of us before. I hear it from myself, and I'm not done with my current one. 
We think we deserve a better job with more responsibility. We deserve to be healthier. We deserve to be married. We deserve to have kids. And we believe and we buy into this lie that says we are deserving of those things and that our contentment is found in those things. When in fact, true lasting contentment will never be found in something. But not only are we called to be content with less, you notice how Paul calls us to be content with more? When we're facing plenty, when we, when we have abundance? Because you ever notice that the more you have, the more you want? The more you crave, the more you desire? We are like, is it Shark Week right now? Is we getting close? Is we getting close? What is that? <laughs> Man, we're like, we're like a feeding frenzy of sharks with blood in the water sometimes, right? I need more, I need that! And, and it's like clockwork. Every time Apple gets up to announce their new iPhone, right? They might actually regress with the next phone, and you're still like, I gotta have it! It can take pictures better. I don't know. It comes in a different color. We always want more. You remember that kid's book that goes, The Bear Wants More? That's us, isn't it? And so do whatever it takes to get a bigger, better, newer, faster of whatever it is that we find our contentment in, whatever it is that we are chasing. But here's the thing. That, that thing that you find your contentment in, that someone, that somewhere, that something that you are chasing, that thing becomes the God that you worship. It becomes the idol that you bow down to. It becomes the altar on which you sacrifice. And that is idolatry. It's turning a good thing into a God thing and putting it above everything, including God. So I want to ask here for a moment, how are you chasing contentment in your life right now? How are you chasing contentment rather than choosing contentment? What is that thing you are trying to escape, thinking that it is a barrier to preventing your contentment? Who, who is that person? Where is that place? What is that thing that you are looking to, running towards or chasing after, hoping that that will provide the contentment you desire? I, just, I want us to be honest on the outset of this series because we're going to continue to come back to this week after week. And we need to acknowledge on the front end that we are looking for external solutions to internal problems. We are chasing contentment rather than choosing contentment. But Paul doesn't just show us what contentment is not in this passage. I think we also see two things that contentment is. I think we see how it is that we can, we can find contentment. And what he shows us here is that contentment is learned. He refers to that word twice, and it's learned both in our circumstances and it's learned in our community. All right, this desire for contentment, again, it's, it's natural. It's natural that we desire contentment. It's, 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 contentment is a lot like my beard, for example. This glorious beard on my face, it is natural. It is genetic. Thank you, Dad. Right? I just wake up and here it is. That's not quite true. It takes a lot of work to maintain the beard, doesn't it? Uh, that's a lot of work. But it's natural. But what sin does, you know, sin distorts our desires, doesn't it? it? It takes this good thing and it distorts it. It's like looking in a wobbly mirror, if you will. 
It's been distorted, kind of like um, this distorted bald spot on the back of my head. Okay, it's distorted. That's not the way God intended the back of my head to look. At least I hope not. But what sin does is it shifts our desires out there, doesn't it? It shifts them, just like uh, it shifted the hair from up here to down here. I do think that bald spots are the result of sin, and all God's bald men said, amen. But here's the thing that I've learned over the course of this summer. I've learned to be content with an abundance of hair on my face and a beard that abounds. That's easy for me to be content with until I meet a guy with a much better beard, and then I want his beard, proving the fact that we need to be content with more. But I've had to learn to be content with less on my head and to be in need of hair on my head, haven't I? I'm not there yet. I'm learning. We have to learn to be content. And what we see here is it's it's not a, a theoretical classroom kind of learning in preparation for life, in preparation for what might come. No, it is practical learning in the laboratory of real life, isn't it? Paul didn't learn to be content about things that he might someday later face. No, he was learning in the midst of whatever situation he was facing, whatever he was already facing. He was learning contentment in the trenches, so to speak. And the same is true for us. Learning to be content in any and every circumstance, just as Paul. And the thing about contentment is kind of like when you pray for patience. God's going to put you in a circumstance in which you need to grow your patience. Learning contentment's about as fun as learning chemistry, isn't it? Learning that periodic table of elements. Here's the thing, though. You're actually going to use this class. You're going to use that contentment that you're learning. And learning to be content in the midst of whatever you're facing, that is part of our spiritual growth. That is part of our formation into the image of Christ. That is part of our discipleship, and that comes from faithfully following the way of Jesus. The result of what Eugene Peterson terms a long obedience in the same direction. But not only do we learn contentment in the midst of our circumstances, we also learn contentment in our community. We learn it together with others. We learn contentment by watching others that we look up to, others who have already learned how to be content in any circumstance. And that's exactly what the church in Philippi was doing with Paul. They were learning contentment by watching Paul learn his contentment. And this wasn't some kind of passive learning where they sat back in the classroom and watched. No, this was active, participatory learning. Paul, he would later thank them in verse 14 for sharing in his troubles and in verse 15 for partnering with him. They were there with him. And so we learn contentment by watching others, but we also learn contentment by walking with others. Especially those who have already faced what it is we are now facing, those who have learned to be content and what we are now learning to be content in. And what makes this so difficult for us is the level of vulnerability it requires. Someone can't walk with you in something that they don't know is happening, can they? When you don't allow someone in, they can't walk with you. And so it it requires us to open up, to, to let our guard down a bit, to lower those walls and allow others in. And that's scary. I remember when Jill and I, we, um, we lost our first child. And we were facing the possibility of not ever having children. 
And what God did, uh, and I tell this story in a, a bit longer way, that this is redemption, but God put this couple in our lives. He put them in our path, if you will. He, he dropped them into our small group one day. And as we got to know Peter and Suzanne, we got to know their story, and we got to see that they were walking the exact same path that we were walking, only they were about a decade ahead of us on that path. And what we saw in them was this almost supernatural contentment as they journeyed on that path. And we did something that was really scary in that we allowed them to walk with us on our path. They journeyed along with us. But by allowing them into our journey and into our story, we began to learn contentment in the midst of infertility from them. We only learned it by watching them and by walking with them. But hear me, not one second in those five, six years, not one second went by that we didn't still desire children, right? That contentment did not suppress our desire for children. If anything, it only, it only grew. But hear me, what I need us to see is that we are able to learn how to be content in whatever situation you're facing. And that does not mean that you need to suppress that desire for your situation to change, for something more, for something else. And that's not just true in hard times like that, but I think that's especially true when you find yourself in, in, in abusive, oppressive, unjust, and unhealthy environments. If someone in authority over you or in power over you ever uses a passage like this to force you to stay in that abusive relationship, in that toxic environment, not only are they abusing you, but they're abusing God's word. And I hate with the core of my being that every blessed sermon we have to add asterisk after asterisk like this. And as much as it grieves me and as much as I hate it, I hate even more that those of you in this room have experienced it. And so that's why we're going to keep adding asterisk after asterisk because that's real life, isn't it? Some of you sitting in this room have had passages like this twisted to control you, saying you need to be content, you need to be quiet. Can I say one, I love you, and two, I'm so sorry. And it grieves God's heart even more than mine. But if that's you and this whole sermon, you've been kind of checked out, can you check back in for a second? And please listen here to this reason why Paul is able to say the things that he says. Because what Paul's going to do in this last verse is he is going to point us to this one true source of lasting contentment that is available to you this morning. And it's that our contentment is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? Look what he says in verse 13. Can we read this one together? Let's read it together. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. One more time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This might be one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture. And at the same time, I think it may be one of the least known and most misused. You know, I've said a few times that uh, this passage may not mean what you thought it meant. 
And uh, I know that doesn't always sit well with us, but it's true. Um, let me put it like this. Um, I'm going to let you into my dream world here for a second. I, uh, I often, I don't believe I can fly, but I do dream that I can fly. And I don't mean fly like Michael Jordan. Like Michael Jordan can fly kind of from the free throw line. And I bet even at like 85 years old, he can still put it down from the free throw line almost. No, I, I believe I can fly like Superman. Like up, up and away, and I can fly in the clouds, and it's awesome. And, and not only that, I kind of have this, this uh, not so much a, a dream at night, but a, a dream of, uh, of wanting to run a marathon, a full marathon, all 26. Um, the thing is, is that a couple of years ago, I ran two halves. And two halves do not make a hole for those of you that have ran a hole. I'm not saying that. But, like, I know what training for a half is twice, and I'm pretty sure that training for a full is a lot more and a lot worse. And I, I just, I'll be honest with you, I don't want to do it. I don't. And so a passage like this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does it mean that I can do impossible things like fly? Does it mean that I can do impossible things like running a marathon without training at all? That, I, that, that through Christ, who gives me wings, like a Red Bull commercial, or, or strengthens my legs, is that what this means? Of course it doesn't mean that. Right? We can't cut a verse like this out of its passage, and we can't take a passage like this out of its contest, twisting it to say what it is that we want it to say. And that's what so many people do when they take this verse and they slap it on a bumper sticker or you put it up on a sign in a gym wall. I can bench press 450 pounds through Christ who strengthens me. I can't hardly get the bar up anymore, guys. All things does not mean anything and everything. Rather, it points back to a specific thing. He's pointing back to verses 11 and 12, and he's showing that the only way that we will find the contentment to endure in whatever situation you're facing, the only way we will find the strength to make it through any and every circumstance is in and through Jesus Christ. Christ is the only true source of lasting contentment. That is our big idea. That is our big idea of the passage. That's our big idea of this series. And you might be wondering, Paul, he, he, he mentions this as a secret, and he doesn't mean some sort of Gnostic secret. No, he, he refers to this as a secret because those who don't know Jesus will never know true, lasting contentment. They will continue to look for it out there rather than in here, rather than in Christ who strengthens us. Because that contentment, it cannot be found in someone else. It cannot be found somewhere else or in something else, only in Jesus, right? Christ is the only true source of lasting contentment. Because it is only through his death on the cross that we find that love and belonging and acceptance that we long for because through his death, he has reunited us to the heavenly father, to a God who is love. It is only through his resurrection that we find the freedom that we sang of this morning because sin no longer enslaves you. We are freed of those chains. It no longer holds power over you. And we find it through his glorious ascension. Through his ascension, we find strength to endure because as the Son ascended, the Spirit descended, and he fills the hearts of those who are in Christ, the source of our strength. And I think we need that truth. I think we need that reminder because 
our circumstances and our emotions, they will change, won't they? There's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. There's going to be days where it seems like everything's going right and there's going to be days where it seems like everything's going wrong. Our relationships, the people in our lives are going to change. People are going to come and people are going to go. We are going to be loved by some and we are going to be let down and hurt by others. And how much we have is going to change. God willing, there'll be days of plenty and abundance, but there's also going to be days of need and of great need. And in the midst of all of that change and uncertainty, Jesus is the only thing that remains the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus is the only thing that is constant. Jesus is forever faithful. Jesus is that never-ending source of strength and of hope. Jesus is the one who said he will never leave you or forsake you, but be with us always until the end of the age. And that's why only in Jesus will we ever find true, lasting contentment. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.